Happy Sunday, Spark. My name is Siddhi, and it is so great to be here live with each and every one of you today. Thank you for taking the time to join us in the midst of Fourth of July celebrations and everything else that all of you have going on this weekend to join us to celebrate God and community together and for participating in our services as always. So for the past year or so, we've been preaching through the gospel according to Luke, which for a variety of reasons is my favorite gospel account. It's the gospel account that made me fall in love with the person of Jesus when I first became a Christian and exposed me to the powerful transformational implications of our faith in the world today. Last week, Pastor Tom, Pastor Kevin, and I preached through Luke chapter 15, where we covered the parable of the lost things. And today, we're going to continue on in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 16, where we're going to deep dive into two parables that Jesus tells. The parable of the unjust steward slash dishonest manager slash unjust manager, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Both of these parables use Jesus's perspective and commentary on money to expose to us as Jesus's followers his expectations of our attitudes toward the poor, as well as what really reaching across social boundaries for friendship looks like. From the very beginning of Luke's gospel account, it's unambiguous how much he cares about something theologian Halver Moxney's calls the economy of the kingdom. I'm going to wait for the train to go by. While the great reversal, which is something that we've spoken about in Luke at length, is core to all of the gospel accounts, Luke places particular emphasis on God's promise that the fortunes of the rich and the poor in this life would be reversed in the kingdom of God. We see this from the very first pages of Luke's gospel account in Mary's song. When Mary sings, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. We see it again in Luke chapter 6 in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. We see this theme again in Luke chapter 12 in the parable of the rich fool when Jesus condemns the rich for believing that money and greed is what would secure their lifelong prosperity. And today we're going to see this theme play out again in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus' perspective on money is magnified as absolutely central to understanding the gospel message. So let's start with the parable of the dishonest manager. This is a really hard parable to break apart. In fact, there are so many interpretations of this parable that have existed throughout church history that Klein Snodgrass, who wrote one of the most comprehensive books that we have to date on parables, called Short Stories with Intent, literally spent 16 paragraphs in his book going through every interpretation of this parable that's existed throughout church history, and then spends another million paragraphs dismantling why most of them don't make sense to him. So it's kind of a hard parable for us to dig into. 
The one thing that Client Snez says, though, which I find really helpful and is hopefully going to be a heuristic for us today as we try to work through what's going on here, is that a parable that was this unclear to its audience at the time wouldn't have had the level of importance and prominence that it ended up having amongst Jesus's followers. So a helpful thing for us to think about as we navigate what's happening here is what kinds of interpretations would have and wouldn't have resonated with Jesus's audience at this time, which in chapter 16 is alternating between the crowds, his followers, and the Pharisees or the establishment. So with that, let's read the parable of the dishonest manager together. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So there's a ton going on here. Let's start by just setting up the two characters that Jesus is using in this parable. On one hand, we have the master or the rich man, and on the other hand, we have the dishonest manager. Jesus characterizes the rich man in this parable the way that he's characterized a lot of rich people throughout Luke's gospel account so far, which is people who either knowingly or unknowingly use their wealth and their social position to exploit the poor in some capacity. And we know from this parable that this dude is really loaded, because if we look at the amount of debt that the manager is forgiving, it's about 25 times the produce of an ordinary family farm at the time, which tells us that this guy isn't just rich, he's really, really rich. And on the flip side, we have the character of the manager. In the context of the Roman world at this time, a manager would have been likely to be either a slave or a freedman who operated as an agent in his master's business affairs. And this was a pretty good social status at the time, maybe even an enviable one, right? The master had a roof over his, the manager had a roof over his head, he had a steady income, he was connected to someone wealthy, and so losing that position would have meant losing all of those things. 
And so we can see here the power dynamic that's at play between the master and the manager. The manager, realizing what's at stake, realizing he's squandered his master's money and that he's probably going to lose his job, in Jesus's own words, uses worldly wealth to make friends. He wants to be welcomed into people's homes after he no longer has a job. And so what he does is he cheats his master to curry favor with his clients by forgiving their debts. And then, in typical parable format, the absolutely unexpected happens. Jesus praises the dishonest manager for how he chose to use his worldly possessions. Why would Jesus praise anybody who was dishonest or disingenuous for being dishonest or disingenuous? It's something that doesn't make sense. In fact, this question has plagued interpreters for so many generations because people can't wrap their heads around Jesus saying something good or positive about somebody who in the very first lines of this parable he literally set up to be a dishonest person. So some scholars are so bothered by this tension, right? So bothered by the idea that Jesus, our Jesus, could say something good about a dishonest person that they sort of explain away the manager's dishonesty by saying, well, all he was really doing was doing something good for the poor and exposing the rich man's bad business practices along the way, since Jews were forbidden from lending interest at the time. For me, that's really hard to buy, because if you remember in the very first lines of this parable, Jesus literally says there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So I think that to Jesus, to his followers, to the audience at the time, everybody would have looked at the manager as a dishonest person. Other people have argued that maybe what Jesus is doing here is endorsing dishonesty when the ends justify the means. And that a Robin Hood type approach of stealing from the wealthy to give back to the poor is Jesus-like. I personally think that both of those views miss the point of what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this parable. Jesus isn't praising the manager for being dishonest, nor is he indirectly endorsing lying when it makes sense to lie. Jesus is praising the manager, a dishonest man with dishonest practices in spite of his dishonesty for the way that he used worldly resources to do something good for the poor. Think about that for a second, right? This is our Jesus who can look at a dishonest person and praise them for something good that they decided to do, despite all their shortcomings and all of their failures. How the manager chose to use his money is what Jesus emphasizes, not the fact that he was dishonest himself. I want to point to verses 8 and 9 when Jesus says, For the people of this word, world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Even though Jesus can call out something positive, good, that the manager did in service of the poor, the expectations that Jesus holds his followers to is even higher. When Jesus talks about people of the world here, he's talking about the manager who did something good, but his giving was in service of reciprocity. I give you something, so I get something back in return. The manager in this case is forgiving debts so that the people in his community take care of him when he no longer has a home. But the kind of giving that Jesus holds his followers to isn't giving based off of reciprocity. It's giving that is purely no strings attached. Joel Green, who wrote an awesome commentary on the Gospel according to Luke, said, Given the world system he served, the manager had acted prudently. 
But even that world system is rejected in favor of the inbreaking kingdom. So Jesus tells us that there's a current age and there's a new age. The manager acted in reciprocity in the current age, but Jesus implores us to use our financial and worldly resources in service of that new age. N.T. Wright, like in many of his interpretations of Jesus' parables, just like the one we spoke about last week in the parable of the prodigal son, argues that the parable of the dishonest manager is really just an extended metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. God is the real owner of all of the land and property at our disposal. We as humans, or Israel, manage those resources. Israel fails in the task of managing God's resources in the right way and is in threat of immediate dismissal. I appreciate and find a lot of value in this interpretation because it echoes the biblical theology we've heard from the very beginning of our biblical narrative in Genesis and Psalms about how God, all of Earth's resources belong to God and all of humanity plays the role of the steward. It's how we choose to use those resources on a day-to-day -day basis that chart us on kingdomly or unkingdomly paths. I think N.T. Wright sums up really well what this parable is about when he says that this parable has nothing to do with commending sharp practice in business or personal finance. Rather, it advises us to sit in light of the extra regulations which we impose on one another, not least in the church, which are over and above the gospel itself. Putting the passage together, we find the underlying challenge is to be faithful. Faithful in our use of money, faithful to God rather than money, faithful in our hearts and not just in outwards appearances, faithful to the kingdom which has now begun with Jesus. As soon as we begin to think of money or land or other people as commodities we might own or exploit, we take a step away from our vocation to be truly human beings, God's true children, and towards the other master who is always ready to accept new servants. I think that that's a beautiful summing up of what's going on here. Okay, so we were supposed to cover two parables today as if that one wasn't complicated enough. Let's move on to our second parable of the day in Luke chapter 16, which is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's read the parable together. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, when he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 
he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus is working on a couple different levels in this parable. On one hand, the parable continues to be Jesus's denunciation of the way that the rich treat the poor. But on another level, this story serves as a kind of reversal story that was really common in the ancient world about how the fortunes of the rich and the poor in this life would be reversed in another life. Both the Beatitudes that we touched on earlier, as well as Luke chapter 13, are really good foundational material for understanding what's going on in this parable. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So Jesus sets up this parable by illustrating the extreme contrast and social distance between the two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, to mirror how the chasm they experience in their real life, in their living life, is completely different than the chasm they experience after they die. You have the rich man wearing fine purple linen, which was a sign of extreme luxury in the ancient world. Purple dye was really hard to come by, so when someone wore it, you instantly knew that they were very, very wealthy. You contrast that with the image of Lazarus, who's covered with nothing except sores. While the rich man enjoys a feast every day, Lazarus is reliant on the scraps that fall from his table. While the rich man has a gate, a physical boundary marker separating him from the rest of the world, Lazarus lives homeless at that gate. While the rich man enjoys a proper burial, something that we knew was important to Romans and Jews for different reasons in the ancient world, no such burial is mentioned for Lazarus. Throughout Jesus's dramatic comparison of these two characters, the rich man is portrayed as powerful, active, and in control, and Lazarus is portrayed as weak, passive, and at the mercy of the rich. The audience of this parable, when hearing the contrast between the rich man and Lazarus, might have had a reaction along the lines of Job's buddies in the Old Testament, right? That the reason the rich man had been rich and had all the fortune that he had was because he must have done something in his lifetime to deserve God's blessing. And the reason Lazarus was in the position that he was in is because he must have done something to deserve his poor fortune. But here's the catch that Jesus includes. Lazarus is named. He's the only character in the parable who has a name. And when we think of Jesus's parables, how many characters can we think of in general who do have names? Lazarus's name is his only status. And his name comes from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God helps. And if you remember, Eleazar is the name of Abraham's faithful servant in Genesis chapter 15. And Lazarus is transported to Abraham's side by angels into a completely reversed position in the heavenly banquet compared to what he experienced in real life. We see that beautiful, great reversal at play again. The rich man experiences torment and agony in Hades, whereas Lazarus experiences joy and bliss. It's like we can hear the words of Mary's song come to life all over again in Lazarus's reversal about how God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Abraham himself 
exemplifies and emphasizes this reversal when he says, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So you'd think that by now the rich man realizes that he's probably done something in his life that's wrong to deserve this outcome and feels terrible about it and repents about it, but he doesn't. And in continued ignorance, he selfishly goes to Abraham, thinking that the only reason why Lazarus is with him is to run errands on behalf of the poor. And he goes to Abraham and he begs him to send Lazarus back to the living world to warn his brothers who are still on earth of the fate that awaits them. The idea of the dead returning back to the living world to warn the living of their fate was a really common idea in the ancient world. And so the audience of this parable likely would have expected Abraham to grant the rich man's request and send Lazarus back. But Lazarus is not permitted to return. And Abraham insists that the words of Moses and the prophets should be more than enough to warn the brothers of the fate that awaits them. Here at Spark, we've preached through Old Testament scripture that talks about laws and teachings and codes for caring for the poor, the widow, the orphaned, and the oppressed. And the establishment that Jesus is speaking to in this parable would have been very familiar with Old Testament laws on caring for the poor. But the rich man pays attention to Lazarus too late, to his plight and his poverty too late, and to the words of Moses and the prophets too late. The irony rings loudly when the rich man refers to Abraham as his father. Abraham serves as a model of kindness and hospitality throughout the Old Testament, and what the rich man has done in his life is the exact opposite. We see this language foreshadowed earlier in Luke in chapter 3, when Jesus says, And do not begin to tell yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Spark the rich man embodies a theme that we've spoken about at length throughout Luke, and that Jesus laments about in the parable of the sower that we preached through last year. This idea of seeing, but not really seeing. Hearing, but not really hearing. The rich man doesn't see, hear, or respond to the plight of Lazarus, a poor man who is dying literally right outside his gate. What does it look for us to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the poor authentically? If you remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? Do we see Lazarus? This theme of hearing, acting, and repenting is profuse throughout Luke and in the book of Acts, as well as throughout the other gospel accounts. Jesus, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, brings it full circle back to the establishment that the parable is addressed to. The same Pharisees who raffed and ridiculed and mocked Jesus for including the poor at his table, this parable is about them. The rich man is them. When could the rich man also be us? Jesus's primary purpose here isn't to attack all wealth or all kinds of rich people. It's to attack a very specific kind of wealth, the kind of wealth that either unknowingly or overtly neglects the poor. In fact, Jesus doesn't condemn all people just because they're rich. There are many examples in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus speaking highly of wealthy people for how they choose to use their resources. 
In Luke chapter 8, Jesus condemns a wealthy woman who works for Herod because she supports his ministry out of her own means. He speaks positively of the banquet giver in Luke chapter 14 and speaks highly of the wealthy but forgiving, loving, and caring father of the prodigal son in the parable we walked through last week. And in Luke chapter 19, Jesus commends a wealthy tax collector for being a true son of Abraham for how he chooses to use his worldly resources in service of the poor. So Jesus isn't making a blanket statement on all wealthy people or anyone who has money, but he is making a scathing commentary on the kind of wealth that doesn't see poverty and suffering, the kind of wealth that only services itself, and the kind of wealth that does nothing to help the poor right in front of it. Jesus' parables in chapter 16 don't necessarily give us clear-cut answers on what to do with our money or the best way to use our resources in service of the poor, but what it does make clear in no uncertain terms is that the wealthy not seeing the poor is unacceptable in the kingdom of God. Does anyone remember when Jeff Bezos famously in 2018, after becoming the richest man on earth, told a reporter, the only way I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. That is basically it. Really, Jeff? I think Jesus might be talking to you. What does wealth used faithfully in our world look like today? And what about wealth that's used unfaithfully? Spark, not all, but many of us living and working in Silicon Valley today find ourselves flirting with the kind of wealth and privilege that can blind us from seeing Lazarus. Sometimes we don't even realize the powerful ways in which wealth works within us and through us and between us that can blind us from seeing those most in need. A body of research conducted by psychologist Paul Piff and his team has found that rich people often have implicit biases that can prevent them from seeing their own privilege. Paul Piff's team at the University of California at Irvine designed an experiment where they invited random pairs of strangers to come and play a rigged game of Monopoly. At the beginning of the game, a random coin toss would decide which player was rich and which player was poor. The rich player would get $200 instead of $100 at the beginning of the game. Every time they rolled the dice, they got two rolls of the dice instead of one so they could move around the board twice as fast. And every time they passed the go sign on the Monopoly board, they would collect $200 instead of $100. Piff's team observed very closely the way the rich players acted throughout the course of the game. And what they found is that the wealthier the rich players got in Monopoly money, the more they took joy in their opponent's misfortune, the more they loudly banged their monopoly pieces against the board, saying things like, you're going to lose all your money soon. And the more throughout the course of the game, they genuinely started to believe that it was because of their own skill that they had won, not because of a random toss of a coin. When researchers asked the rich players at the end of the game why they thought they won, almost none of them said that it was because of luck, but almost all of them said it was because of the role of their own talent, intelligence, and monopoly skill. Paul Piff, who ran the study, summarized the results saying, this is a basic human bias that's true of us all. When something good happens to you, I think because of the cognitive machinery that we're equipped with, we think about the things that we did that contributed to that success. And when we see that, and we see that in people who win in all walks of life, when you're winning, you think about all the things you did to help you win. The problem is that that bias writ large, at least in the domain of inequality, it can get people who are winning at the game of life, who have more money, 
more privilege, and more power, to think about their resources as things that they deserve, to be less likely to think that inequality is a problem, because after all, they deserve what they have, and as a result, to be less willing to do things about it, to be less willing to contribute to people who have less, to be less willing to behave in ways that are compassionate and that help the needs of those that have less than they do. Similar research conducted at the University of Toronto by Stefan Cote added more color to Pip's findings and found that the distance created by wealth differentials makes it even harder for rich people to empathize with the poor. Cote's study found that in higher income areas, individuals tend to be less generous when inequality feels relatively high. Rich people were just as generous as everyone else when they lived in an area where inequality wasn't particularly high. But the moment the person of need felt different or distant, physically, economically, or culturally, rich people were much less likely to help. We have a growing body of evidence in this literature that supports the hypothesis that many rich people behave in this way because of tribalism, self-interest, and the ingrained value of looking out for themselves over others. And the wealthier there are, they are, the more they have to look out for, and the more opportunities there are to rig the world in their favor. Yes, poor people do all of these things too, but they're often doing it in response to the circumstances that rich people have put them in. This is why we find in other social psychology research that when rich people are more compassionate, more kind, and more giving, it's because they've been primed to think about community well-being as bigger than just themselves and define their own into broader and broader circles. That sounds pretty Jesus-like to me. So let's wrap it all up. Jesus doesn't argue that wealth is inherently bad or that rich people are inherently bad people. But it's clear throughout Luke's gospel account and throughout our entire biblical text that we can't remain neutral in our relationship between God and money. Wealth isn't evil, but neither is wealth neutral. Jesus gives us no easy answers on what specifically to do with our money, but he does implore each and every one of us to focus deeply on what kingdom-focused economics might look like in our lives. What does it take for us to really see Lazarus? What stops us today from seeing, hearing, and then acting upon the plight of the poor right in front of us? How might we reevaluate our relationship with money? And what does that relationship tell us about ourselves? After all, as Jesus says in Matthew, where your treasure is, there your heart will be too. It's that time of our service where we share in communion and reflect on Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection through a tradition that was passed down from the beginning. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.